should open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're continuing in our study here of the, the topic ostensibly has been biblical masculinity. What it means to be a man in scriptural terms, to take on the masculine role. And uh, it's, uh, it's an important concept for us, if only for the day and age in which we live. I mean, it's important in all ages, but we live in a time when there is uh, prevalent in our culture. This is one of the reasons why we can't take our cues about these things from our culture. There is present um, a philosophy, a system of thought uh, that is, has a label. It's called egalitarianism. First time I really encountered the, the thought with any kind of depth at all was reading uh, Judge Bork's book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, a, a wonderful book, by the way. I, I highly recommend uh, Robert Bork, who was um, not allowed to be a part of the Supreme Court, wrote an extraordinary uh, volume and is well worth your time. Uh, egalitarianism as a, as a philosophy has this basic concept to it. And it, it has a good part and it has a bad part. Um, we, we have as a part of our founding documents of this nation a statement like, um, we believe that all men were created equal and endowed with certain rights by their creator. And we understand what we mean by that equality. And we don't mean by that that every person is exactly the same as everybody else. Uh, not everybody has the same eyesight. Not everybody has the same physical health. Not everybody has the same uh, financial status or social standing. And yet, um, we're created equal in the sense of the law. The law must treat us the right way, and it must treat us all without respect to our race or without respect to our financial or social status or anything else of the kind. And so this idea of equality is a good idea, but it can be pressed in directions it it can't possibly go in if we look at the at the uh, the biblical information and in egalitarianism what happens is that men and women are now viewed as dude not even distinct from one another and so you don't make any distinctions between them or their roles you simply say everything that's open to men should be open to women and vice versa and so as a result you end up with things like women in combat which i'm not too sure is a very good idea uh, not not for the men. I think it's a bad idea for the women. I think it's, it's a bad idea for them. And it certainly comes into the church as well. And we start to remove the distinctions that God has rightly placed there. And when we do that, then we, we strip the Word of God of the things that it's trying to communicate to us. So we, we have this in our society. And there are people who believe everyone should have exactly the same income. Everyone should have exactly the same physical possessions, everything should be identical for both groups, for all groups, in every way. And of course, that's untenable, because it denies the very distinctions that God puts there. Now, as I said, in one way, this is necessary. In the church, for instance, if you read the book of James, the book of James is egalitarian in this way. It says, I don't care who comes into the church, you better not treat them differently because of their money, you better not treat them differently because of their social status. You better treat them all the same as spiritual equals in that sense, but not all having the same roles. I had someone who came to me a while back, and they said, you know, we got some 
looking to build a building. And we got some people in this church, and they've got some money. And you need to court them a little bit. I said, no, it's not the way it works. In the church, I'm not given that permission. We treat everyone exactly the same. Wouldn't it be nice if they had an office or something in, in the church, a name recognition, and maybe those, those wallets would loosen up a little bit? No, nope. Scripture forbids us. That's an egalitarian point of view. That, that, or that's the, the contrary to it, and we're not allowed to take it either. Men, we know that our women, that our wives, our women, well, that sounds sexist, huh? That's a good one. I, by the time I get home, there's going to be tension in my marriage. Um, I, I, can, I can feel it already. Um, we, know, we know that women are not spiritually inferior. They are every way are equal in the eyes of God. And yet there are very clearly distinct roles that differ. God-appointed roles. And the way those things go out. So we can't allow that. In fact, the Bible doesn't take an egalitarian stance toward all things. But instead, especially when it comes to men and women, there's another word that's become popular in Christian circles in the last few years, which I think is a, a good word and, and better expresses the relationship between men and women, and it's the word complementarian. I think it's a very good phrase. It's a good idea. We complement one another. That's the way we're made, to complement one another. <clears throat> My wife is a cupboard door or a... I'm a little bit OD, and I've got to have those doors closed. We complement each other. She opens them, I close them. we got a good arrangement. All right, but no, it, that, that's in a funny way. But there, but it's true in in the way that we respond to life, that men and women are meant to complement one another, to supply one another's strengths and weaknesses. We're not contrary to one another; we're complementary to one another. What happens in a marriage is that you can begin to look at those things that are complementary as though they're contrary, and now you're butting heads with each other. You can't go there. You've got to figure out how to say, well, how does that fit together? That's, that's the, the scriptural pattern that's given to us. So we do want to go back and find out how scripture then addresses this whole idea of biblical masculinity. It doesn't ignore the distinctions between men and women. It puts them right out on the table. And so far we've looked at four traits. The first one we saw was responsibility for what God has committed into his hands. A man takes responsibility for the things that God has placed within his hands. In, in Adam, he was in the garden, and God gave him the garden and said, I want you to dress it and to keep it. And so he said, okay, this is my job. This is what God's given me to do. And, and all of us have those jobs, both in the natural and in the spiritual. Secondly is the responsibility. A man takes responsibility to obey what God has commanded, whether anybody else goes along with him or not. And believe me, I understand that that is difficult in our society, given certain circumstances. It's funny that we will point at young people and talk about peer pressure all the time. But the truth is peer pressure never ends and it even goes on in the church. That's why some of you this morning dressed the way you did. Because your peers, you think, would look at you a different way if you came in wearing what you really wanted to wear. Because you buckled to peer pressure. It never ends. We do it. We do what's accepted. When I was um, just after... I had taken the job at Johnson Rose as national sales manager. My first responsibility that week, my very first week on the job, was to fly to Chicago and have a, a sales meeting with all of the, uh, our reps across the country. And so I got to Chicago, and a brand new job, never been with these people before, didn't know any of them. They'd put us in a room together. We'd had this 
big, long eight-hour meeting, and then the boss said, well, you know, we've all got to go to dinner. So we went out to dinner. We got a big table, and there were 25 of us. And, and as I use this example, I, I hope you're not going to pick up on, well, well, we'll get there. So we, we got around this table, and, and they started asking everybody for drink orders before, as they went around. And so everybody ordered their drink, and I was the last one in the group. Now, I didn't order alcohol. I don't like it. All right? Now, I hope you understand biblically where all that stuff is. If you haven't sorted that out, we'll sit down and have a talk sometime. But, you know, the Scripture doesn't forbid, and, and we've got to be careful and, and not overdo what Scripture does or, or underdo. We've got to stay on the, on the right level. But I got, they came to me, and I said, I'd like to die at Pepsi. And no sooner did the words get out of my mouth, four hands shut. And all of those men said, we want Diet Pepsi too. And I thought, was it a mystery they had Diet Pepsi? How I many was kind of hidden knowledge? Was I a Nazi? I suddenly thought I had illumination that they had Diet Pepsi. No, everybody there was pretty sure they had Diet Pepsi. And I got, I got the message outside after the guy. And the one guy grabbed me by the arm, pulled me over, and he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I thought, what in the world? I said, yes, I am, because of Diet Pepsi. I mean, you know, think about it. I don't think that's the badge of Christian. And, uh, and so I said, well, yes, I am. And he said, so am I. And he said, one of the things I hate about this job, and he said, I don't like to drink. But I always feel when I'm in a business situation, I have to. And he said, you didn't have to. And he said, the rest of us, were able to refuse because you did. I understand peer pressure. I do understand peer pressure. But men, being men means we finally step up and say, I'm going to do what God commands whether or not the others do it. Now, did God command me to have Diet Pepsi? By no means. I'm sure I could have had a Sprite and been perfectly godly. Well, all I'm saying is we can't, we can't gauge ourselves that way and we've We've got to follow through. Thirdly, we saw responsibility toward the protection of and provision for women. It's, it's the transition between cooties and care. You start off as a little guy thinking women are icky, and then you get to the place where you say, there is something in my heart that is concerned about the provision and protection of women. You don't have to be married to have any of these. They're, they're, they're just a part of the inherent male nature that God gives us as men. And in masculinity, we take that up and we say, you know what? I, I feel this responsibility toward women and, and, and I need to protect them and I need to provide for them. That's part of what I do. Fourthly, we saw that a real man has responsi- takes responsibility toward protecting the sanctity of the marriage union. He makes sure that that's viewed in a holy and a sacred and a separate way. Uh, Talk about the bedroom is not fit for the water cooler at the office. The sanctity of the marriage union must be protected. And a man feels that. He grows up when he starts to take that seriously. Well, that then leads us to our fifth trait. We want to get through three this morning. And it's opened up for us in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, that was really a good question. He was really saying, hey, do you know that for a fact? Is that hearsay? 
Where'd you, where'd you hear that? Did you hear that from Adam? Maybe you didn't get it right. Are you sure that's what God said? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now there's the problem. We can, we can take a good idea, what we think is a good idea. I mean, here's makes sense, doesn't it? God said you shouldn't eat it. I think it makes sense. If I shouldn't eat it, I shouldn't even touch it. Well, that's fine, except for this. She didn't just say, God said we shouldn't eat it, so I've determined for myself I don't even want to touch it. She said, God said we shouldn't touch it. God never said that. Now, did she have a good idea? Sure she did. But you know what we have done? And we do this all the time in the church. We start adding to what God has said, and the evil of that is, is we've just said, I'm God. I get to write law. I get to say what's right and wrong. No, we don't. He gets to say what's right and wrong. And we're responsible for that. But she kind of jumped the gun here and went on and said, well, no, neither should we touch it lest we die. But the serpent said to her, the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The only problem with that is you and I can't know good and evil the way God does without it destroying us. He's immutable. We're not. We're corruptible. He's incorruptible. And as soon as we're into an area we're not designed for, it's destructive to us. It's the point. We can't go there. We're not made for that knowledge. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, now she picked that up from verse 9 of chapter 2. Out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. She says, okay, it meets the two criteria. And then, she, then, then an added thought. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. Hmm. Let me tell you the truth. Nothing you can eat will make you wise. I've experimented long and hard in that department. <laughs> Nothing I ate ever made me smarter. Nothing. That isn't where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from God. Not from food. But she, she took the bait. It was desiring to make one wise. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Fifth trait. A real man, as men, we take responsibility for our own spiritual health and welfare and how that spills over to others. We take responsibility for our own spiritual health and welfare and how that spills over to others. Deep personal responsibility for the pursuit of God. We can't dodge it. We can't duck it. We don't, we don't step back and use the God is sovereign excuse. If God wanted me to be closer to Him, I'd be closer. Now, that's not the way it works. A.W. Tozier, I think, put it in the best possible terms when he wrote it this way. Most of us are not as holy as we would like to be, but we are all as holy as we are willing to be. Dead on the money. Dead on the money. 
As a man, it's our job to take responsibility for ourselves here and now and to carry that into the lives of others. If men, let me say it frankly, if we are not growing in grace, the responsibility rests 100% with us. Not our wives. Not our kids. Not our jobs. We can't point the finger at anybody else. We've got to step back and say, no, that's not where this, that's not where this is. I know I've heard people say, oh, I wish I were a man of prayer. Pray! What's stopping you? I wish I was a man of the Word. Read it! I wish I was somebody who was walking with God. Get off your butt and follow Christ. Is that crude? It's right! And we'll step back and make all kinds of excuses as to why we can't walk with Christ ourselves. And it's all trash. I know. I've made most of them up and passed them on to the rest of you. I've used every one of those excuses over time and a thousand more. And none of them are valid. You need to take responsibility for your own spiritual life. And there's no other way to really step up and become a man. Now, this comes out. You say, man, how, how did that show up in this passage? Let me show you in a very specific way. It's verse 6 that really makes it come alive. God had said to Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now Eve is talking to the serpent. And then Eve took the fruit and gave it to him and he ate it. But there's a problem in the way that we work through the equation. The problem is in the words at the end of verse 6. Pick up at the beginning. Now when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Now watch these magic words. And she gave also to her husband with her. Where was Adam when all this was going on? Right there. He's listening to the conversation. He's watching the exchange. He hears the whole deal and he doesn't say a thing. He takes no responsibility for his own spiritual walk and leaves her right there while he's with her to be deceived by the enemy. Man, we can't do that. We have to take responsibility for our own spiritual health and welfare and how that spills over to the ones around us. At that moment, he abdicated his role, and in the abdication of his role, he suffered the consequence. Masculine trait number five. A man takes responsibility for his own spiritual health and welfare and how that spills over to others, especially the women and children. Number six, it's picked up in verses 7 through 12. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. If there is any place in this entire passage where Adam acts least like a man, it's at this moment. And it's where you and I often fail. Because the sixth trait is that a real man takes responsibility for his own sins and its results. He doesn't point the finger. The spirit of the wimp is the jelly-spined, blame-shifting, finger-pointing man who says, the woman you gave me, the house you made me grow up in, the dysfunctional family I was a part of, the crisis I went through when I was 12 years old. I don't want to minimize for a moment the reality that some of us have been through horrors as we grew up. Some of us have been horrendously abused and robbed of all sorts of good and godly things. But the truth is, that is not an excuse for a sinful response to those things. And a man steps up and says, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's my sin, and I own it. I know that's, that's not the way we think in our day. We're so used to pointing the finger. A couple years ago, I'm sure every last one of you are familiar with this. A dear lady in her 80s drives to McDonald's, and she drives into McDonald's drive-up, and she gets a cup of coffee. She, lacking a... a a cup holder decides to put the coffee between her legs and pull out of the driveway. And as she does, she squeezes a little too hard and the top pops off and she spills hot coffee on herself and she burns the tops of her legs. And she goes to the hospital and she gets treated and then she calls her attorney and says, sue those people at McDonald's. Now, if I had been the attorney handling this one, I would not have been as pleasant as the ones who were actually there. I watched part of the trial. I was started off with, Dear Madam, have you ever made a cup of tea in your 86 years? To which she no doubt would have responded, Yes, sir, I have. And I would have said, And in the process of doing that, did you heat the water? And she would have said, Yes, sir. And I would have said, And did you bring it to a particular state? Maybe boiling? And she would say yes, and I'd say, and do you understand at what temperature water boils? And because it was before Celsius was popular, she would have said 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And I would have said, then you knew it was hot. <laughs> it's really not tough, is it? But it shows you the mentality of our age. I got burned. It's got to be somebody's fault. I, just, I, re I watched one on the legal channel a while back that this guy is my hero. He, he owned his own company in California, one employee company. And the company's total job, what he did, was he mixed uh, custom blends of fertilizer for the state of California. And so he had a big mixer, food mixer, a big old, old um, uh, Hobart mixer. 
And he would blend these things together. And one day he wasn't paying real close attention. And he got his shirt sleeve caught in the thing while it was turning. And it sucked him in and broke both his arms and six ribs. So he ended up in the hospital. He's in the hospital, you know, in the thing with his arms up in the air. And he's, and he's thinking, he's thinking, I can't work. Huh, I'll sue my employer. He is the employer. It's a one-man deal. So he calls the lawyer and says, my employer didn't provide proper safety guards when I was mixing the fertilizer. And he says, really? We ought to sue the guy. Who is he? He says, well, it's me. He says, doesn't matter. We'll sue the company. Even though he's the only guy in the company. So he calls his other lawyer and says, I'm being sued. He said, by who? He said, by me. He said, for what? He said, I didn't provide proper safety guards. And the morons of the state of California awarded him a million dollars in damages. Why? Because we are a society of people who don't want to take responsibility. We want to point the finger at somebody for everything. So I want to say, hey, my mom didn't love me growing up. She may not have. She may have been cruel and abusive. And you need to deal with the reality of that. Just don't use it as an excuse for sin. I've heard it said, I've said it myself over the years, oh, I wish I had a mentor. <laughs> Adam didn't have one. Probably wasn't the thing he needed most. We can point back to all kinds of physical anomalies that we've got and difficulties and heartaches and but the father I didn't have and the mother who didn't mother me and the siblings and the schoolmates who picked on me and the neighborhood I lived in and the poverty I grew up in and the and the school I went to or the one I didn't go to, all of those may be real, they may be painful, and they may be disastrous, and not a one of them is an excuse for sin. But you see, we use them. They're convenient. We point the finger. And when it's all said and done, we still have to own our sinfulness and the responses to them all. No excuses. That's what a man does. He says, you know what? Sin's mine. Nobody else's. I can't point the finger. Now the last one. It's in verse 20. And I love this one because it is the sweetest of the bunch. It's where Adam finally grows up and becomes a man. And it's what makes it so enjoyable. Masculine trait number seven is the responsibility to courageously go on in the face of discouragement, difficulty, and failure. That's what men do. They go on in spite of discouragement, and difficulty and failure. Let me show it to you here. You go through this whole portion of Adam first pointing the finger at his wife and saying, the woman you gave me, which ultimately is saying, God, it's your fault. I mean, you're the one who gave me the woman. Think about it. Which is ultimately what you and I are doing. God, you gave me those parents. God, you didn't give me those parents. Um, you, you gave me that situation. You gave me that job. You gave me that, that thing. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So point the finger and say, well, God, it's your fault I sinned. Well, let's, let's take it to, a, to the conclusion, what, what we're really trying to communicate. So he goes through that, and then God addresses the serpent for the deception that it perpetrated. He addresses the woman for being deceived and what goes on there. And then he addresses the man and tells him he's going to have to eat of the fruit of the ground and and in pain, he's going to eat of it all the days of his life, and it's going to yield thorns and thistles, and, and, uh, and by the sweat of his brow, he's going to eat that food. 
And all of a sudden, you have this remarkable statement in verse 20. After all this is done, he turns and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Isn't that interesting? Just a minute before, he pointed at her and said, she's to blame. And now he takes a 180 degree turn. Because in the process of hearing God say all that God said, he also heard God say, and he didn't miss it, he heard God say, the seed of your, of your womb is going to bruise the serpent's head. And Adam said, God is gracious. And I pointed the finger at you, but the truth is, it's by you that deliverance is eventually going to come. You're the mother of all living. He could have at this moment thrown up his hands and said, you know what, I can't deal with this. Woman, you're against me. You're, you're hurting me here. I can't grow. He didn't do that. He could have continued to blame her and say, you know, it's a horrible thing. You, you were deceived. He didn't do that either because, remember, he just owned his sin, so he stopped doing that. And instead now of looking at her as though she was the cause of his demise, he says, oh, God has ordained to bring life out of you and I will honor you and I will stay here and I will make food for us and I will prepare for us and I will provide for us and then they have kids and he teaches them to seek God. That's when a man is man. When the world has fallen apart and the discouragement and the failure, your own failure, rests on your shoulders and you say, but I need to go on because God's God. I can't stop here. This isn't the end of the story. It's an amazing thing he does. He labors to provide for her and he continues to love her and they have children and then he commits the truth about God to them. How do we know that? How do we know how that stuff got, got committed to them? Because as you watch the genealogies in the chapters that follow, you've got two different bloodlines, one that runs from Cain and one that runs from Seth, and you watch how they're instructed in the ways of the Lord, the ones who run from Seth, and how they follow him and call upon him. And, and as we look at the genealogies and how they stack up in terms of, of time, we find out that, that Abraham probably heard the story of the flood from Shem, Noah's own son. And that Shem was alive while Adam was still alive. Or at least when Seth was. And got the story of creation only three people down. It wasn't that much longer before Moses shows up. And God transmits this information Generation after generation, Adam became a faithful man. Being a man isn't about fixing cars or shooting guns or hiking or mountain climbing or football or wrestling or being macho or sex or winning fights or tattoos or knowing how to get drunk or having a beard or a deep voice or anything else of the sort. 
Now, some men tend toward those things, and, and that's fine. They are activities, but they aren't what you are. And you can't confuse the two. Self stands before God. A man in terms of his relationship to the Heavenly Father and how that plays out in his relationships to the world and everything else in it. Responsibility for what God has committed into your hands. Responsibility to obey what God has commanded. Responsibility toward the protection and provision for women. Responsibility toward protecting the sanctity of the marriage union. Responsibility for our own spiritual health and welfare and how that spills over to others. Responsibility for one's own sin and its results. Responsibility to courageously go on in the face of discouragement, difficulty, and failure. Can I give one little sideline on that last one? Here's the biblical pattern. Some of you young men, uh, you're at the age where you're going to be looking perhaps to court or date a young woman. Um, can I tell you that in our day and age, men have said we don't want risk. And so we're just going to back off because the thing that we, we fear the most is rejection. Can I tell you, young men, that it is not a young lady's responsibility to contact you. It is your responsibility to contact her. And if you are rejected, buck up. It's our job. And to continue, that's part of the process of learning to grow and to take on that rejection and those other things that come. I, I sold coffee for eight years. Four of those years, my entire job was cold calling. I got paid eight hours a day to be rejected. At the end of those four years, I was a dead man. I couldn't take any more rejection. I just had it. But as men, that's part of what we do. And we don't like to do that. We, we like to, to kind of dial back and, and let the woman be the aggressor and do certain things there. We can't. We've got to risk it. We've got to risk it because we're, because we're men. We're God's men. A man can be a real man in all of the things that we've looked at here, and he can grow up and be an artist. He can grow up and be a musician. He can grow up and be a dress designer. He can grow up and be a poet or even a ballet dancer and still be a man. Can I tell you why? Because all of these traits are nothing more, nothing less than pictures of Christ. They're his godliness as he walked as a man on the earth. That's who we're made to look like, like Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, where we started out in this whole thing. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. And then verse 14 puts it in these words. Let all that you do be done in love. <laughs> That's masculine. To let all you do be done in love. Why? Because that's Christ. That's our Redeemer. That's our Savior saying, you know what? I'm going to follow the Father. I'm going to take these spiritual realities, whether anybody goes with me or not. I'm going to do what needs to be done for, this, for the cleansing and the protection and the preservation of my bride. I'm going to own all of her sin. And no matter what happens, I won't get discouraged.
I'm going to see this through to the end. That's our Savior. There's not one portion in Scripture that will ever lead you to believe that Jesus got into a fist fight. I don't believe he had a tattoo. I might be wrong, but I, I think I could prove that by Scripture. I don't know if he had a beard or not. I don't know if he had a high-pitched voice or not. I mean, we, we just buy the pictures. Jesus might have looked like Don Knotts. You wouldn't have thought very much of that, would you? I know, because y'all laughed. He might have. But that isn't where his, his masculinity was. His masculinity was in following God. So is ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the challenges that your word brings to us. It refuses to let us be the way the world tries to mold us. It is relentless in challenging our preconceived notions and in calling us to something else. I also want to thank you today, Father, that as these things have been placed before you, we recognize again that while the responsibilities rest with us, <laughs> the strength and the power and the provisions rest in you. And you tell us to run to you. I know it's only supposition, Father, but there are times when my mind just wonders what would have happened if in that moment when, when Adam heard what was going on with the serpent, if he had run to find you instead of just stood there silently. And I wonder how many times, Father, in my own life, instead of running to you, I've stood there silently. You don't ask us to face these things by ourselves or in our own strength. You ask us to draw everything from you. Oh, make us like him. Him, the one who committed himself to you in everything. And that's how he was able to die. Father, we need that in order to live. And I pray it for every man in this congregation as we learn to walk with you in the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.